Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to this episode of Sound Waves of Belonging with myself, Anahi Dashgard. Today I'm focusing on belonging and the body, and I'm joined by guest Farzana Doctor, a well-known writer, activist, and registered psychotherapist. She has published four critically acclaimed novels, including Seven, which is a groundbreaking novel based on her own experience with female genital mutilation. Her recent poetry collection, You Still Look the Same, was called by Quill and Choir a powerful and necessary collection that breaks silences. She is also a founding member of We Speak Out and the End FGM Female Genital Mutilation Network in Canada, and regularly speaks and educates on these issues for women across the world. Farzana and I speak about the journey to belong in and two bodies that are misfits, labeled outsiders in some way. We talk about how hard it is to find pleasure and to love a body that's been rejected by others, but also how powerful to find voice finally, as we both have done through writing. Farzana shares her experience with FGM and why she chose to finally come out in this way publicly, the courage it took and takes. And we talk about how learning to love our bodies is the most revolutionary act Because as I write in Bones of Belonging, my recent book, the language of the body helps us connect to the truest story, the story that will eventually set us free. So please enjoy today's episode. Welcome, Farzana. Thank you so much for joining me and, uh, and all the scheduling delays. We're finally here. On this beautiful day. Thank you for inviting me. uh, I'm looking and noticing your poetry book behind you, which uh, I know just came out and I have ordered my copy, but it hasn't yet arrived. And uh, I know you just had the launch for it yesterday. Tell me about this this latest collection. Um, You're a writer, you've written many books. Uh, This is, I think, one of your um, a few collections of poetry, and I know you wrote it over the course of a decade. Yeah, and uh, I know it's quite intimate in the themes it, it kind of deals with. So, tell me what compelled you to write this particular book. Yeah, you know, I've always written poetry, and poetry has often been like the playful part of my writing practice um, while I've been writing the novels. And um, I, I wrote or rewrote most of these poems in my 40s. I'm 51 now. And I realized I had enough poems potentially for a collection. So it was, you know, through the process of doing major revision and editing and trying to figure out how do these poems speak to each other? How do they make sense to the reading audience? Um, that I decided, yeah, I'm going to put them all together. I think part of what, you know, helped me to have the courage to do this is that after writing four books and getting pretty good reception for them, I started to just feel a little bit braver because while it's not a memoir, um, it's memoir-ish. Um, mm-hmm. All of the poems are seeded from something that I've either observed or experienced, um, which means that it's way more personal than my other books. And I think it, it just took some time, you know, in my writing life to feel like I, I could take up that space and, and write in a more personal kind of way. 
It's interesting because uh, I think there's, at least for myself, there is something about turning 50 that makes one give slightly less of a fuck. Yes, yes. <laughs> just, or, you know, f- freeing, like a little bit more freedom to just feel entitled to your own journey, regardless of what others may think. That's right. And I so, think so too. It's a really common experience, isn't it? Where we enter into spaces, often lovely spaces, often spaces filled with good people, kind people, and you can do that count of the number of Indigenous or people of color in the space and how disheartening that is and how much we have to wear masks and you know, put on our armor to be in those spaces to feel like we can survive them. Mm-hmm. It's such a common experience, especially for writers, I find, but for probably most BIPOC people. Mm-hmm. I think it's heightened in the arts community, in the writing community, especially, probably for many reasons. But uh, I remember, um, and I wrote about, I wrote a piece about this in the upcoming book about my experience traveling through the publishing community after the my first uh, book, the memoir, was published. I and remember that piece. You did you did you post something of that online? I, yeah, I did a, a an abbreviated version of it, and then I kind of I um, included the the longer version in the book. And there's one moment where I was traveling out west, and I was invited to the Vancouver Writers Festival, and um, it was very exciting. And of course, it's one of the bigger festivals, and it's really supported by the community. And there was a, a social event in the Writers Lounge on the opening night, and I was pretty exhausted by this point, and and feeling like emotionally sagging inside but wanting to make the best of it because these moments in life don't come very often and so got myself down there and walked in the room and one of the senior people um, directors was there um, greeting people as they arrived and I went over excitedly to introduce myself and they were of course a white white person and they were surrounded by mostly older white writers who were the you know the let's call them the Canadian white royalty, like in terms of writing world. And, uh, and most of the room was, was that demographic. And it was striking because this person seemed sort of uncomfortable in the conversation. And instead of introducing me to people that we were surrounded by, which would be the natural thing to do, they walked me over to the corner of the room where there was one other person of color, um, a black writer seated there and introduced me to them and that moment was so and you know we both looked at each other and I knew we were both feeling the same way not of not that we of course we were happy to be introduced to each other but Mm -hmm. the ghettoization of that behavior even in terms of the room like we were literally squilched into the corner together and then this room is filled by white writers standing talking and occupying space with their voices and their bodies and just feeling like the hell is happening and so my experience was so much about feeling in my bones um this reality that the racism is not conscious it's not overt it's the subtle invisible systemic ways in which writers of color get just straight jacketed into one way of being and quite frankly an inferior way of of being and the toll that takes on the body and i know you write a lot about the body in your writing 
Yeah, I think it, it creates a lot of stress. You know, in the afternoons, I'm a psychotherapist and I think a lot about our nervous system. And, you know, when we need to be creative and grounded, we need to be, um, Dan Siegel has this theory called, you know, the window of tolerance or capacity. Mm -hmm. And we need mm -hmm. to be in that beautiful window in order to respond really well. But what, what do these experiences of subtle or overt oppression do to us, but, you know, put us out of that window into hyperarousal or hypoarousal. And we have to really work so hard um, to cope with those feelings of threat in our nervous system. And so we're in those spaces, performing, coping with our nervous systems, maybe not enjoying ourselves very much, you know, and then maybe we don't sleep so well that night. And then we're tired the next day when it's our turn to get up on stage and do our thing. Mm -hmm. It's, I think it's a really harsh reality of this publishing world. Yeah. Have you seen, th seen things change since you started writing and putting your books out? Yes, definitely. I mean, there have been changes. Um, and, you know, with the caveat that so much more needs to happen. But one of the really good things that I've been seeing is that um, the juries for the awards have really changed. So there aren't any more all white juries, um, which then means that the outcomes of their conversations are going to be quite different. And so we're seeing more and more BIPOC folks winning the awards. And that mm -hmm. feels like a really lovely place. It's, it's, it's not um, changing the system in mm -hmm. terms of those organizations, because those juries are chosen for a really short amount of time. They're not salaried workers. Mm -hmm. um, they are contracted for whatever number of months. So mm -hmm. the executive directors are still the same and the people in the leadership are still the same, but these temporary folks mm -hmm. come in and create some change. Now, maybe that does create some institutional change long-term. If we get 10 years mm -hmm. of this change happening um, and people start to see that the BIPOC writers books are the good books, the important books, the books that should become the bestsellers and so on, maybe that begins to change the mm -hmm. way that things, but you know, it's a slow turning ship. Yeah. You yeah. know all about that but as someone who does um, organizational change work, how slow yeah. this change is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's like learning a new language, like um, equity is learning a new language. And I think we often those of us that do this work, and I know you're a part of this, often underestimate how long it takes for people to really put the equity lens over their eyes and start to see interactions, systems, policies in literally a new light. And mm -hmm. that it's not a one-off shot, that it takes repeated openness, obviously, and motivation, but repeated curriculum and material and conversations to actually have that happen. So when I think about what you're saying, it's, it's like those, there's more exposure in the publishing world to have that, that learning is starting to happen slowly mm -hmm. and hopefully mm -hmm. surely. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of writing, uh, I know that your last book made a real splash in the writing community globally, I would say, where you um, are one of the few writers to speak openly about the experience of female genital mutilation 
um, and its impact. And I know it's a it's a it's a fiction, it's a novel, but I I know that you in your touring with a book talked about that being part of your own experience. And I think you started the organization here in Canada speaking out about um, FGM. There was this moment um, in 2015 when I was starting to do some activism with a group called We Speak Out in India. My own trauma memories were coming to the surface and I was waking up each morning with these fully formed fictional scenes that I had to write down. So it just felt like there was no choice. Um, and of course I had choice, <laughs> but it felt like that. So I just kept going. Um, mm. And then I started to realize, yeah, we, you know, we have to talk about this more. Um, a, a novel is a gr great way to get more people to understand the issue. So, and then I had to grapple with how do I position myself? Um, should I talk about being a survivor or not? And I realized, oh, that's probably good for me. It's going to be painful, but it'll be good for me. And it would also lend more weight uh, to the work, you know, to be to, to say, this is fiction. And I want to talk about this important issue. And I'm a survivor, too. And I might not mm -hmm. be who you would have pictured as a survivor, you know, you know, one of the things that happened. So, you know, mm -hmm. it was 2020, September 2020. It was all virtual events at that point. Mm -hmm. And I started getting invited to a lot of things, more book clubs than ever, more organizations than ever, more festivals than ever. And at least half of the conversation was about the issues and people's questions about this practice. And then there'd be some conversation about the book and the characters and the setting and the craft. Mm -hmm. And I realized like people were really interested, sometimes maybe in an in a way that wasn't didn't always feel great, but mostly people were interested in how do I be an ally? Um, what do I need to do in my organization? How do we ready ourselves to work with survivors? So mm -hmm. it was really gratifying because this is an issue that for years felt very hard to broach to get anyone to be interested in talking about. And then I had this book, right? And books add weight and value and importance. And so it was no longer a conversation to broach, but just a conversation to have. Mm -hmm. And so I, I really credit Seven with helping, um, helping me to enter into more dialogue as an activist around these issues. And hopefully that helped more people. Mm -hmm. So again, I would, I would not recommend it. It was all so fresh and I had to do so much emotional work to mm -hmm. get myself there. And there were moments when I was like, am I just like bringing a lot of pain and misery to myself? Mm -hmm. But you know, the, the happy ending to the story is that, you know, I did enough work, emotional work to get there. It wasn't so bad. It kind of felt liberating. It felt tiring. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like it had impact. And so I'm very proud of the book and that impact. I also wonder if there's something around experiencing marginalization, um, exclusion, rejection from society that, in my experience, you're either totally divorced from your body 
or you're in a process of really trying to make peace with it because it's true, true. Yeah. There's not a neutral relationship to the body, I guess is how I, I would put it. And yes. certainly I feel like I went from rejection in my childhood to, and then many, many years still in process of, of really trying to learn what it is to live in my body because um, since moving to Canada, it was everyone around me rejected this body that I was in. And so I learned to do that as well to survive. And so the mm -hmm. practice of becoming embodied has been a lifelong and political act. Yes. Yes. And an act of healing. And yes, I, I, I agree with you. Like we either kind of hate our bodies or we learn to like honor and respect and care and maybe love. Um, our bodies and it's probably a work in pro process and you know some days it's both all um, some mm -hmm. some days we're leaning more in the direction maybe of the care and respect uh, but I I agree with you you know I have this this really strong memory of um, going to swimming lessons in Whitby Ontario which at that time was a very white town not a suburb of Toronto as it is today this is where and you grew up. This is where I grew oh, up. Oh <laughs> my goodness. Okay. And did you immigrate yeah. here? I just have to ask you. Um, yes. Um, so my family came to Canada when I was six months old. Uh, so I really grew up uh, in Canada and we spent our first few years in the Halifax area. And then um, at the age of about four, four and a half, we moved to Whitby and um, I, I remember sitting beside this white girl as we were waiting for, you know, whatever thing to happen next in our swimming lesson. And the white girl, you know, said, hey, can you see that girl over there? And she was pointing to a black girl who was in the pool. And she said, you know why her skin is so dark? And I said, why? And she said, it's because she's dirty. And in that moment, I just shrunk inside of my own body and thought, okay, so if she's dirty, then I have to be some kind of dirty too. And I remember like, like kind of rubbing at my skin in the chlorinated water, wondering if any of it was going to come off. And that was, that was what it was like to grow up in Whidbey, Ontario at that time, right? There was, mm -hmm. um, in my school, there was the one Black family, the one South Asian family, yep. us. And yeah. then the one Chinese family, right? Yeah. So we were really on the margins of things. Um, and it was very awkward. It was, it was very difficult to feel um, belonging. It was very difficult to feel like you fit in in any kind of way. Going back in time when the experience of genital mutilation happened, if it was after you moved here on a trip back or what was your experience with that? Yeah, it was on a trip back and um, it happened without my parents' knowledge or consent. Um, you know, wow. one, of the, one of the dynamics that sometimes happens, um, well, first of all, it's a collectivist culture. So extended family members um, can feel that they have some right to uh, care for children in the way that they think is best, you know. And, you know, when it comes to cutna or female genital cutting in, in my community, it's only been since 2015 that there's been any kind of mainstream dialogue about it. So before that, it was a very silent taboo issue to, to talk about. And all like the narrative that people had was it's good for the kids 
And um, our religious leader says it must be done and it's our tradition, so we do it. It's a very insular community with some, you know, some kind of traditional um, practices that are really unique to the community. So this was one of them. So if a parent, if they felt like a parent wouldn't want it to happen, they would just kind of go around them. Um, and this, this is a, I think a fairly common experience is I've, I've heard this from other uh, survivors as well, that their parents, their westernized, westernizing parents, you know, their parents who, you know, maybe had a mom with a Dorothy Hamill haircut, <laughs> you know, cutting, cutting the hair is like one of those symbolic things going western, um, losing your culture, you know, losing your religion. Um, when that dynamic is there, often elders will just be like, okay, we, we just need to get this done for the child. Um, it's, it's, it's very different in terms of its consequences and impact, but you know how sometimes relatives will just take a child to get their ears pierced without asking their parents. That's how they would have thought of it. So yeah, mm. yeah, it happened when I was on a visit. Yeah. And how old were you? I think I was about four, four and a half. I was quite oh, young. Wow. And, and how you did know, your parents react when they found out? Well, they I never told them because part of the uh, gaslighting that happens, there's, there's a couple of messages. The gaslighting is don't talk about this. Don't tell. Like a lot of sexual trauma is, you know, and um, nothing happened is the other gaslighting message. They really believe that it's, um, not harmful that it's a tiny nick like they this is this is their narrative right so nothing happened why are you crying and you know nothing happened so um I I think I have these you know it's hard now because memory is such a weird thing but I I have I have some memory of maybe trying to talk about it but not having the language and not really getting very far and talking about it with both my dad and my mom. And then my mom died when I was when when I was 11, she was 38. And I told my father about it in maybe 2016. And he had no clue often the men in the community know nothing about it. Um, it's really kind of in the world of the women to enforce this practice that the big dude, religious mm -hmm. dude says we must do it. So he was quite shocked. Didn't even mm -hmm. know that it was still an active practice. Wow. Yeah. And it's part of the um, purifying women so that pleasure is not, does not kind of. Yes. It's, yes. it's part of, it's, it's, um, what I like to say is, is that it's part of the global continuum of gender-based violence that is all about uh, policing and um, controlling um, the bodies of women and non-binary people. So it's not different from rape culture. It's not different from the purity culture that happens in, you know, white Christianity. And in fact, white Christianity purity culture has caused FGM to happen to white survivors in the U.S. too. So it's really this kind of global thing of like denying that like 
our sexuality matters or that it belongs to us or that we have Mm -hmm. any bodily autonomy or right to pleasure. Mm -hmm. So it's just, I feel like it's just one of many practices like that. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's um, back to the body, you know, this idea of recognizing the innate intelligence of the body and the pleasure in the body and the body's way of being is such a revolutionary act because so many of the systems we're part of capitalism, patriarchy, white supremacy are based on this core idea of divorcing the mind and academic knowledge and, um, you know, consumption from experiences in the body that can't be commodified that are, mm-hmm. um, care based. So in direct contradiction to, and it's, I know Adrian Marie Brown has done a lot of writing about this, like pleasure activism, but it's, it's, it's incredible when you start to make these linkages between just yeah. something as simple as pleasure and how threatening that is. Like yes. if more people in our society would be to connect, we're connected to their sexuality to pleasurable activities how it really would result in a very different world. world. And, you know, I've been, I've been thinking about diet culture recently Uh. as, you know, my body has been going through perimenopause and rounding, you know, as bodies do in this stage of life, I've been thinking a lot about diet culture and fat phobia and how um, that's like, that's another one of those things that is like so Mm -hmm. capitalist based. It's based in like not trusting the body, not trusting that our bodies know what to do or that we can, you know, obey our hunger. We can obey our pleasure. Like we, so many of us have these complicated relationships to food because we've been taught Mm -hmm. a lot of nonsense. Right. Mm -hmm. So I just, I think all of these things are so connected and, denial of the body mm-hmm. and yeah yeah the beauty yeah. of the body mm-hmm. yeah no I agree with you diet culture is a real is a whole other <laughs> sexuality love esteem mm-hmm. yeah like you just like connect the dots yeah yeah what are you yeah. um you know you're in your early 50s now and what are you kind of um what are you looking ahead to in your writing or your life? Mm. Um, I've written four novels, and then this book of poetry. And recently, I started to write another novel, but I got to about page 25. And I was like, "Mm, I don't know if I'm feeling this, let me put this aside. But there was some other stuff that was just kind of, you know, when things start lining up in the brain, and you've got to like, just write it down, because it's waiting there for you. Mm. So I feel like I'm writing a memoir now, um, about some of these issues that we've been talking about. And I've been terrified of memoir writing, you know, like, I always think it's so amazing when people like you and others write memoirs, because I think, oh, how, how scary. But um, I guess, you know, there's that thing about, you know, you, you, you come into your voice, and you have more bravery as time passes. And just personally, I'm hoping for a bit more of a coast in my 50s, who knows if it's going to happen. But my 40s were full of so much change and that's I think that's what seeded many of the poems in the book um you know I went through um a breakup of a long-term relationship in my very early 40s um then I started online dating really dating for my 
for the first time in my early 40s. Before that, I feel like maybe I just arrived in relation, you know, you meet somebody <laughs> and then you're with them, you know? Yeah. yeah. I never, never really dated. So I started dating. And then I had all this trauma to work through in my 40s. And I fell in love and I got into um, another relationship with a very beautiful person. And um, all of this while going through perimenopause. So it felt very rocky. And I'm hoping that my 50s, you know, knock on wood, um, hoping that my my 50s will be a bit of a softer Mm -hmm. uh, decade for me. Mm -hmm. Well, I'd like to believe that when we do that personal digging and kind of, you know, unearthing the the, uh, festering pus or, you know, at the bottom of the wound that, and clean it out, that it can just, things can be more easeful. And I love the fact that in a way that's evidenced by the, the multiplicity of your voice, like your voice coming out on all these different ways and that happening, it sounds like after you wrote seven, which was a real, like kind of, was that reckoning for you? Um, yes. So all to yes. say, I think they'll be smooth sailing. So deserved. I can't <laughs> think of who would deserve it more. Um, and I want to finish just by asking you, what does belonging mean to you now when you think about oh, that word? It's such a hard question, um, you know, because like you've probably experienced and so many people who listen to your podcast have experienced that there's been such a lack of that belonging and so much pain around not belonging. Um, but, you know, I'm 51 now. And I think where I found belonging is in the places where I've nurtured um, community, been part of community, or been welcomed into community. Mm-hmm. So it's all intentional, right? Um, so I have, for example, a lot of friends who are people kind of like me, who are the children of immigrants or came as children to Canada. And we have these um, bicultural experiences of being kind of Canadian and kind of from wherever we were. Many of us have lost that mother tongue and we have to accept that. Um, So that's very intentional. Um, I think it's also just where I live. So, you know, home, you know, where is home? I don't know where home is, but I've, I've made home in this house with my partner in this neighborhood. Today, you know, I've only been in this neighborhood for four years, but, you know, I dropped in on one neighbor. I happened to see another neighbor on my walk home. And it's, it's just through intentionally um, being of service to others, being kind to others, chatting with others. Like that's, that's really how we create home and belonging is. So it's, 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 it's about constantly finding it, you know, cause it's not just there. Maybe it's the superpower acquired through years of rejection is on the flip side, learning how to create it because one has to, it doesn't just magically yes. arrive. Yeah. Uh, that's really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Your description of creating it in these little, in these different places that you find yourself and inspiring. And thank you <laughs> so much for making time to come here today. Thank you.
thanks so much for joining today. Please feel free to share this episode. And you can also visit my website, anahidashgard, A-N-N-A-H-I-D-D-A-S-H-T-G-A-R-D.com, where you can order my latest book, Bones of Belonging, where I dive deeper into themes we discussed here today. Be well, and look forward to you joining next time. Mm-hmm.